Support Life of the Law. Your donation makes it possible for our team of journalists and scholars to investigate, produce, and publish reports such as the in-studio episode you're about to hear. Whether it's $10, $20, $50, or $100, go to lifeofthelaw.org and support award-winning investigative journalism today and in years to come. Thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, the police of the court. How can I cooperate with a system so that's more likely to kill my uncle so but, we're not, but not a white person? So we're arguing the imposition of the death penalty then? This is no, what, this we is argue, argument. we're arguing about the biggest problem in America right now. As long as these civil wars go on, America will never be great. This is Life of the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. What does the color of someone's skin have to do with their access to justice? This month, we presented a two-part story on the life and execution of Warren McCleskey. If you haven't listened to Unequal Protections Part 1 and 2, do it now. But to recap, Warren McCleskey was a black man living in Georgia. He was convicted of robbing a furniture store and killing a white man, and he was sentenced to death. He appealed his sentence to die all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. His attorneys presented evidence, statistics, data to the court's nine justices to prove that someone convicted of killing a white person was four times more likely to be condemned to die than someone convicted of killing a person of color. Four of the court's justices accepted the evidence that Warren's right to equal protection under the law as guaranteed by the U.S. Constitution had been violated. But five of the justices rejected Warren's evidence, and in 1991, Warren McCleskey was executed. To many legal scholars, the court's disturbing 5-4 to four ruling in McCleskey v. Kemp was the beginning of the end of equal protection under the law in America. Even though law students know the case McCleskey v. Kemp, many Americans are wholly unfamiliar with the importance of the case. So we decided to take this month's in-studio discussion inside San Quentin State Prison to talk about McCleskey, criminal justice, and race in America, with men sent to prison since the court's ruling back in 1991. In-studio, San Quentin State Prison. My name is Shadid Wallace-Stepter. I go by Shah. I am the chairman of SPJ San Quentin. I'm also the managing editor, editor of the San Quentin Prison Report, and I'm also the production coordinator for San Quentin TV. I'm 35 years old. I've been incarcerated for the last 17 years, and I'm currently serving a 27-year-to-life sentence. And I think this topic definitely interests me as someone who has Uh, done post-conviction work himself, I feel really strongly about the argument that was presented that basically was used to defend this man's life. So my name is Osagi Obasugi. I am a uh, professor at UC Berkeley in the Joint Medical Program and School of Public Health. Uh, My name is uh, Emil DeWeaver. Um, I'm the secretary of the Society of Professional Journalists in San Quentin, co-founder of Prison Renaissance and uh, contributing editor, editor for Easy Street Magazine. I think uh, this McCleskey case really illustrates uh, what's broken about our criminal justice system. And uh, I look forward to talking about it. 
Yeah, I'm Nancy Mullane. I'm the executive producer of Life of the Law, and I'm here as not just representing Life of the Law, but as the liaison to the Society of Professional Journalists Northern California Board. And uh, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation about McCleskey v. Kemp. We just published the piece. And uh, we're inside San Quentin, and we're going to have this uh, figure out what those last 30 years really has, may have meant. My name is Rasan Thomas. I'm a contributing writer for the Marshall Project, the co-founder of Prison Renaissance, a vice chairman of the Society of Professional Journalists, a staff writer for San Quentin News, a jailhouse lawyer, a black man who's convicted in a case where I was charged with murder for shooting two men who were both armed with semi-automatic weapons. And as a man who's been through something like that, I'm curious about McClinsky because it talks about how 70% of the time the prosecutor brings charges when the victim is white and the defendant is black, but only 32% of the time when the defendant is white. So McClinsky v. Kemp is, a, is an important case that raises a fundamental question. What type of evidence is necessary to demonstrate an equal protection violation? Is it evidence of some type of systemic or structural harm against a group? Or is it type of evidence that only identifies an individual bad actor who treats someone poorly because of racial bias? And I think for me, right, that is the issue at hand for me, right? So with the case, I mean, it seems like he's arguing for basically change the policy. We need to change the policy of the Georgia criminal justice system because too many black people are getting sentenced to death based on if you kill a white person and you get took through the court process, you're more likely than a white person who kills a black person to be sentenced to death. And for me, I have a problem like that with that because if I'm on trial for murder, I'm on trial for killing a white police officer, I would be, I would feel more uh, inclined to fight for my innocence as opposed to trying to change a policy. Because like he said, he didn't do it, he wasn't the shooter. You need to be trying to change the felony murder rule as opposed to trying to say that you shouldn't kill me, not based on the merits of my case, but based on a constitutional violation. So that's the problem that I have with it. I think that's yeah. a fundamental misunderstanding of how habeas corpus or how a federal appeal works. Mm -hmm. um, actual innocence has no real place in federal court as far as getting you released. It gets you past procedural bars, and that's about it. You need a constitutional violation. So in other words, in the court's mind, the jury already decided guilt and innocence. Mm -hmm. Only thing they care about is the process. What's the process that, that, that how they arrived at that decision fair? Because it's not their job to decide guilt and innocence. So you can't argue guilt or innocence on appeal. You have to argue something went wrong in the process. Bro, you can and, argue guilt or innocence. Uh, those appeal. come, those, those, once you have a constitutional violation, then they decide if that constitutional violation is harmless or not. It's harmless if you're guilty anyway. It's harmless if we cheated you, but no way would the jury was going to let you go anyway. We're not giving you a new trial because we cheated you, and the jury's going to find you guilty anyway. Mm -hmm. That's when that analyst comes into play. Other than that, the lawyers were brilliant. It was a 5-4 decision. Yeah. It was this close. And Ob if Obama was allowed to put a judge in right now, we could revisit that and get a different answer. But unfortunately, Trump is president. But it bro, was a brilliant what argument. But whether or not you did it or not? Listen, it's not about whether he did it or not. It's about Everything trust. Is about no, no. It's, I'm, I'm going to take from Brian Stevenson. Mm -hmm. He said, it's not, does, he, does a person deserve to die? Is Do we deserve to kill him? Mm -hmm. And if we can't separate our implied biases from the process, mm -hmm. then no, we don't deserve to kill nobody. Because 70% of the time, they are charging black people with capital crime. And for the same crime, only 32% white. So that's not even how many people die look, and don't bro, die. Look, look, that's the just, whole process of who's charging statistics you. statistics out there, right? right. But it's, there's already a process set in place. The process is, these are the procedures for certain crimes. So if you, get, if you shoot a police officer, 
These are the potential consequences to that. So within that framework, that's what you need to be trying to argue. It sounds like they're trying to change the whole entire framework. If I could interject, it's, it's, I feel like people have, the, have this impression of the legal system like it's like the old-timey days and like Moses is sitting on a rock and he, like he's, he's hearing people's cases and he's like, that's right and that's wrong and so this is what we're going to do. And that's just not what the legal system is, right? I mean, and that's a problem, but it really sucks that it doesn't, it's not important whether you're innocent, right? Like you read like the one judge, he was talking about, well, you know, uh, like... No, a warden in the case was talking about it does like rich people and poor people get different like results, not based on their guilt or their innocence, but based on their representation. So I think that like it's established that the legal system is not so much concerned with your guilt or innocence. Now, is that bad? Yeah, that's bad. But what do you do? What do you say to a guy, right, who's on trial for his life? And yeah, I'm innocent, but going before the court and screaming innocence is not going to get me out of prison. I have to find a way within this system the way it is in order to get free. But even with that, though, right, you saying I have to find a way to show other that's the way? Like, this is the way. I'm going to point to my race because, no, but listen, look, though, listen. right, for the individual merits of this case, let's, let's focus on because it's just like, okay, don't kill me because you killed 50 other dudes and they was all black, too. Let's focus on what I specifically did, though, right? Let's focus but, but specifically here's the, on but here's the, the merits but, but of he, my case, but here's, not my race. But here's the thing, right? There might not be nothing there, all right? Mm -hmm. So, so because remember, guilt and innocence, that's not part so of the So this is a Hail Mary. No, 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 so no, 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 I don't mean it like that. What I mean, is, what, what I mean is, like Zamil was just explaining, the way the system works, you need a constitutional violation first. Mm -hmm. You, so only thing you can attack on appeal is the process. That's how that's set up, period. Let me see if, let me see if I got this. So what you're saying, Shaw, is that it still should come down to guilt or innocence. Yes. At the Supreme Court. Yes. Right? That's the whole ball game, guilt or innocence. But what Rasan is saying, and I think he might be right, is that once you go to trial, and you are found guilty by a jury of committing a crime, the only thing you can really take to a higher court at that point is your due process violation, that you actually have. That's not true. But I think the bigger question that I think connects all these conversations is, what does it mean to have evidence of racism in the criminal justice system? Mm -hmm. And I think what McCleskey presents to the court is an opportunity to fundamentally rethink what we think about racism. So if you ask the average person, you know, what is racism or what does it mean to experience racism? They say, well, it's a person with racial biases in their mind who then treats someone differently because of their race. And that's the kind of the, the view that the court has, the idea that racism is this very individualist ex experience. You know, you have a bad person with bad ideas affecting an innocent person or treating someone differently simply because of their racial background. And what McCleskey is saying through the Ball study is say, well, actually, Racism is, has, has evolved over time. That is that, you know, if you go from, from slavery to after slavery to Jim Crow, you know, our country has experienced uh, different forms of racism in terms of how they play themselves out. And part of what McCleskey is saying is that we're at a point now in, 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 in American history where racism is very sophisticated. That is, we can have racism without any individual racist being behind it. And the way that it happens is that we build structures in society that produce predictably outcomes that disfavor racial minorities and benefit whites. And that what McCleskey is saying through this evidence that he presented through the Baldur study is saying, look, we have a criminal justice system that on its face is neutral, that on its face it treats everyone fairly. On its face there is no race or racism in how the criminal justice has designed itself. 
But in terms of how it plays out on the ground, in terms of which communities are patrolled, who's on the jury, which individuals get struck from the jury through peremptory strikes, um, you know, these type of questions, there are, there are a series of mechanisms within the criminal justice system that have racial biases embedded with them that produce these outcomes that we have seen in the Balta studies and other studies, that is that African-Americans and other minorities tend to have far worse outcomes. And what McCleskey is saying is that the Equal Protection Clause was designed to provide a remedy when we see such gross disparities in how one race is treated over another. So McCleskey is saying, you know, these kind of individual questions, that's almost, it's, he's not saying it's irrelevant, but he's saying that that's such a small part of the question. The bigger question is how do we look at this system in aggregate and see that so many people of color are being adversely impacted and say that equal protection is being fulfilled? Like, I get that, right? Like, to me, it's a given that the system is racist. That's a given, though, you know what I mean? But when it comes back to, I'm looking, from, looking at it from a perspective of justice, right? So. What do you say to the family of the man that got killed? Because it's almost like we're putting aside the fact that a man died. It's like we're putting that to the side, right? So what do you say to a person that has, my father was killed. There was overwhelming evidence that this man has something with my father being killed. So how do you justify let that man go based on a lack of uh, uh, the equal protection clause? But, but listen, but listen, you're looking at it as an individual, but it's a systematic problem. Mm -hmm. Because of racism is probably why a lot of people are getting killed. Mm -hmm. Because what happens is there's a break between the police and the black community. Because the black community feels that you're not, we're not going to get a fair shake in your courts. So we're going to deal with problems Bro, that's ourselves. that's a different argument. No, though. it's not. It's all tied. Because you can't, tr look, only one black person was on this jury, 11 white people. The whole process is flawed. So I don't even know if he's guilty. I don't know if he's guilty because I don't trust the process because too many racism is everywhere in it. Didn't he say so, he so was there? He said he was there, but he said he wasn't the shooter. But then he shooter. said he was there, though. I but was the there, shooter I was with three other dudes, and the cop got killed. But if he's not the shooter, then maybe he doesn't deserve the death penalty. We only argue about whether he deserves the death penalty or not. Uh -huh. We're not talking about let him get away with crime. Uh -huh. We're not talking about that. We're talking about does he, should we kill him? Right. Should we kill him? And I think it's unfair. Like, how can I cooperate with a system so that's more likely to kill my uncle so but not, we're but not a white person? So we're arguing against the imposition of the death penalty then? This is no, what, we this argue, is arguing. we're arguing about the biggest problem in America right now. As long as these civil wars go on, America will never be great. Uh -huh. As long as the brilliance that, 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 that San Quentin shows us that okay. we have. But, bro, that's a given. The system is broke. Okay. So you accepting it broken? Right. Wait, wait, Absolutely. Why, why, do you, why do you say just so matter-of-factly? Because that that's what it is. But what, 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 do you, what to you, what mm -hmm. evidence do you have that the system is broke? Well, you can look at the Baldy study. Obviously, more black people get killed than white people when it comes to capital offenses. Okay, that's, that's what it is. You know what I mean? So I'm operating within that. What strategies can I use? What defenses do I have within that system? How can I use this system to defend myself? I would say that, that the system is broken because it has no remedies for what's wrong with it. Like, they created a standard uh, that says you basically have to find an individual that says, that in essence says, I'm a racist, right? Which, like, is, 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 is like, doesn't happen in the age of dog whistle politics, right? Uh, so you've created a standard that can't be met. So in courts, racism will always be moot, but it's not moot in real life, right? And the argument for making such a decision is, well, if we did that, we couldn't sustain our justice system as it is, right? So that really points to the problem being, like, the justice system itself is falling to institutionalization. It's no longer perpetuating justice, it's perpetuating itself. But that's not really the, the, the function of, of, of a court of justice making it easy to support laws. But 
once you make that your priority, now your priority is just perpetuating the institution and not serving your purpose. Right, and I think that's a key point, and I think this is exactly what Brennan's getting at in his dissent. Yeah. So when Brennan's talking about a fear of too much justice, he's basically calling out the rest of the court and saying, you all are cowards. He's saying, you rather see the possibility of a man being killed or, or executed by the state for, for wrong reason or not on solid evidence. You rather, you're more comfortable with seeing that go forward than raising these broader, deeper questions that I put forward to the court by the Balta study. And so the Balta study, and this is, this is part of what, Balta, what Bernie is talking about, saying, look, the Balta study provides concrete statistical evidence saying you have gross inequalities in the criminal justice system that probably reflect inequalities throughout society. And what Brennan is saying is that that makes you so uncomfortable because you don't want to have to revisit structural inequality in the criminal justice system and, and the rest of society. And because you don't want to face that possible reality, you'd much rather go down the route of executing Warren McCleskey because that is easier. And Brennan is saying this is, that's a form of moral cowardice. And, and that's the, it's the, it's the, the, the issues that you're bringing up, the idea that uh, the court does not want to engage a very difficult legal and moral work of looking at how a otherwise quote unquote neutral criminal justice system can produce these terrible outcomes. They don't want to confront that because it raises questions about racial equality across society and the court simply doesn't have the commitment to actually do that work. So this, this is why this case is so important in my eyes because it's not simply about uh, addressing racial equality in a criminal justice system. It's about how do we create a better society? Sure, but at the same time, you have one man whose life is on the line while we're making this argument. You know what I mean? And that's the problem. That, that's what I'm looking at it from an individual basis. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to base my life on an equal protection argument? I'm in that, here for that, the, whether I did it or not. That is a great argument. If you read Foreman, right? Bro, they were leaning towards granting a death like row, this. Hold up, hold up. If you own death row, mm -hmm. you saying I didn't do it. Mm -hmm. You said I didn't do it. Let's, let's reverse you that. You okay with I'm that? I'm on death row. I don't care why you let me go. Let me try this part. So in the story that we tell, Warren McCleskey you know, admits to participating in a robbery. However, he says he did not shoot the white officer who ended up dying after he came to the scene of the robbery, right? So the question not, I mean, when you look at the larger picture of what the Balda study is challenging, which is a racial prejudice within the criminal justice system in Georgia. Now let's go back to the crime. Because when you look at the crime and what the courts presented or the prosecutors presented was a, pretty much a racist, I mean, here is a black man who's being charged with a crime that the, the two testimonies that they have, one is another person who was at the robbery, participating in the robbery, and the other is a police informant that was manipulated right to a jailhouse but, snitch. But shouldn't so wait, wait, let me argue? Well, that's what I'm saying. So your argument is that he was innocent. Like, if he was innocent, that's what he should be arguing before the Supreme Court. Yeah. But what, what they, he was found guilty based on this really unfounded testimony, like a jailhouse informant and a fellow person at the crime. So you're saying he's found guilty, and what Rasan's saying is he can't take that guilt or innocence argument to the Supreme Court, but he can take a racially biased criminal justice system to the Supreme Court, which if the Supreme Court had said, we can see that even based on looking at who is even convicted, 
is sent to death, if your greater chance of being given the death sentence and executed by the state if a white person was killed than if a black person is killed, well, we, they can prove that racial bias. If they had, in fact, ruled five to four in favor of McCleskey, and they had shown that there was racial bias in the criminal justice procedure in the state of Georgia, then that would have been like a huge impact, I think, on the entire criminal justice system, which would have then forced the courts to look at the racial bias in their actual maybe the guilt innocence of the stage of their trial. They would have looked at how are we treating black defendants? Are we giving them fair trials? Because he couldn't argue, as Rasan was saying, his guilt or innocence at the Supreme Court. But if he had succeeded in the Baldus study being accepted as proof of racial prejudice throughout the Georgia system, then that would have changed not just for Warren McCleskey, but who knows how many people? I think that's absolutely right. And I think part of what the case is getting at was trying to have the courts fundamentally rethink the death penalty in the United States. Um, and, and part of what they're saying, uh, part of what he's arguing is that, look, the, the 14th Amendment was put in place to make sure that people of color or, or racial minorities would not be subjected to these type of things disproportionately. And the most robust tool to get at that is this kind of big argument um, through the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. And so McCleskey's not simply in a sense, or his lawyers aren't simply making this case on behalf of him, him as an individual, but it's a it's an argument for changing the way that we go forward. So he was martyred. He, he's basically a martyr. Well, I'm not sure he was a martyr because it's, and again, it's a question to ask his lawyers. I guess the argument would be that this was both the best argument for McCleskey as an individual, while also being an opportunity for society to think about or rethink the the death penalty. So both things can be true. And I, and I kind of have two points related to that. Um, so from a from a strategic point of view, like like even if he could argue innocence, right? He has no way to prove his innocence. It's just my word against his, right? There, there's no evidence that can prove his innocence, right? But he did have evidence that proved racism and unequal treatment. Wait. That was like hard. That's just racism in the institution or racism institution. In, his, in his trial? Institutional, which then puts it in the trial, right? That the, the study... Is, it was, it's like hard data. That's proof that there's a structural inequality at play, right? So that's at least provable. Proving his innocence was impossible without the witnesses saying, yeah, I lied because of this, and him getting another witness that said, you know what, I was there, and I saw who shot who, and it was so-and-so. No chance of doing that. But you can prove, but he did have the evidence to prove what he was trying to argue. And I think that, like, what I'm hearing from you is basically representative of, like, why people in the world are frustrated with criminal justice, they're frustrated with politicians, they're frustrated with legislation, because it's this process that's been made so complicated and so divorced from common sense, so much, so divorced from moral decision-making, so, di so divorced from what the actual citizens on the ground need that these systems are designed to support in the first place. And it's like, you know, I, there's no argument I can give you for why it doesn't matter why he's innocent. But I can say, I look at the system, I read about the system, I study the system, I've, I've studied the laws, and by, like, de facto, that's the truth. And, and let me just jump in there, right, because, like, no, I understand what you're saying, like, ideally, the system is flawed, right, but I'm not coming from an ideal, idealistic standpoint. I'm coming from somebody putting myself in the, in, in, the, in the shoes of somebody who's actually in that courtroom, though. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm actually in that courtroom. So to me, right, it, it, once I heard this and I read this case, 
I'm glad it was so close, five to four, right? Again, I'm, I'm glad it was close, right? But to me, I'm like, man, that's probably could have went unanimous against him. You know what I mean? Because it's it's too easy. I see it from a, from a strategical standpoint. It's too easy to shoot this case down. Actually, I think they it got seemed, it wrong it in McClinsky. Easy. Actually, I think they got it way wrong. They said that he couldn't prove it in this individual case that racism occurred. Mm -hmm. But I think the statistics show it and the circumstances show it. It happens whenever there's a white victim and a black defendant. Bro, bro, Guess what? Smaller. He had a white victim and a black defendant. Mm -hmm. And let's talk, yeah. about, let's talk about the unwritten thing. Uh -huh. A black man killed a cop. They's gonna murder that boy no matter what. So I think a couple things to keep in mind. So one, on appeal, the appellate courts and the federal court system, they're gonna give great deference to the trial court findings. Mm -hmm. So they're they're highly unlikely to review those things. But I think another thing to keep in mind is that is the time at which this case took place. So yeah. the Supreme Court looked at this case in 1987. So this was a moment where there was still hope that evidence of, of structural discrimi discrimination in the criminal justice system uh, could be presented before the court, which would lead the court to rethink the, implication, the, uh, the application of the death penalty. So that is to say that uh, I think at that moment, uh, McCluskey's lawyers thought that this was actually uh, a good window to make this, this argument before the court. Now, I think we feel differently about that in 2017 because sure. we've had several I, I, decades. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the meantime, where we see the court has not necessarily been as open to these arguments. But at that moment, you know, they felt that this was their big chance to make a statement because they had, you know, pretty persuasive statistical evidence by, from David Baldus saying that, hey, this system's messed up. Uh, here's a here's an individual, Warren McCleskey, who is a victim of this. The Fourteenth Amendment was meant to address these types of inequalities. Court, do your thing, and the court decided not to. But then the another thing is, that was a five to four ruling. That means that Justice Scalia had only been on, appointed by the court by well, who was that? Reagan, right? Reagan appoint President Reagan, a Republican, appointed Justice Scalia to fill the seat on the Supreme Court. He'd only been on the court for three weeks when he issued the fifth decision in the majority decision. If it had been, if it had been a potentially a different appointment to the court, then he would have potentially gone the other way. No, but I think what Nancy's getting at is the political nature of the Supreme Court. So yeah. we think we think of the court system as being this kind of honorable, objective, neutral arbiter of, of right or wrong. But what you're, what you're getting at is this notion that who ends up on the court is a product of certain political unfoldings, right? And to make the, this most recent case even more complicated, so, you know, the, the current administration is, in, is currently under investigation for engaging in, shall we say, shenanigans during the election that may very well call into a question the legitimacy of their, of their electoral win, right? So part of what Nancy's saying is that had those shenanigans not occurred and the other person had won the presidency, that person may have appointed someone who may have come came to a different decision, which may have led to a different outcome. So this is, again, getting at the kind of the political nature of these type of decisions and how that has a tremendous impact on the very individual lives that you are no, bringing into focus. Not arguing it, like, at all. Like, I agree with you 100% though, right? But taking it all the way back to McCluskey. So in his case, right, okay, we're saying that because more black people are sent to the death penalty, are, are given the death penalty than white people in the same case, it's a violation of the Constitution. I feel like a better argument would be, you shouldn't be able to send me to death on the word of a snitch. I feel like that would be a much better argument. They have, they, they, they already have that, right? And the only thing you have to do is the snitch word has to be collaborated by law. 
But uh -huh. once a jury believes the snitch and believes the collaborating evidence, that's a wrap. That's out the window. Now you're now. So what you're talking about is, is something similar to what McCluskey was was trying to go on McCluskey, but you're saying it in a different way. You're saying we need to change the system to stop being bullcrap. Mm -hmm. The system needs to just be Moses sitting back on a rock, deciding what's fair and what's makes sense, instead of all the legal mumbo jumbo. Not necessarily, but bro. That's I'm not just, the court we that's, have. That's not what I'm saying. That's not the COVID. That was a that's the best argument they can do in this case. He admitted think, doing it. He bro, had two from, people telling on him. He had somebody else here, saying it was the same kind of gun. From sitting here and listening to this, right, what seems more cruel and unusual to me is right. that you can send me to death row right. based on the word of two dudes as opposed to, nah, other black people got convicted and, and, and juries was, was by. That's my team. whole point. Would they have sent a white man to death row on that same evidence? That's the whole freaking point, Sha. Bro, again, back to what I'm saying, right? Because in this case, for McCluskey, this was the most important thing of his entire life, bro. And we're going to put it on, like, the ideal of the system? Every time you bring it back to the facts of an individual case, right, you're, that's basically playing into the paradigm that says you have to prove individually that X, Y, and Z happened. But the problem that I see with that, when you get away from that, it's like you're not looking at the facts of what happened anymore. And the person that you, law is designed to protect people. You know what I mean? So in this instance, again, this is what we can't forget. Somebody died. Somebody died, bro. Two people, excuse me. I know a cop died for sure, and apparently another person died for sure, right? So I think a lot of the time these laws are passed based on sentiment. It's the sentiment. We have to protect people, and we don't want to let people get away with murder, essentially. You know what I mean? And so if you argue in the fact that, okay, wait a minute, I didn't murder the person. This, there's something wrong with the way that we're looking at this. I think I would rather focus on that before I go to the whole institution. That's what I'm saying. Don't look, I, I don't want to look at it from that end. So I really appreciate the, your, your argument. Because part of what you're saying is that, look, before we even have this constitutional argument about equal protection, there are these fundamental questions at the trial level that have to be taken seriously. And if, if, if people aren't protected at the basic level of what type of evidence is being reviewed or offered to condemn a man to death, you, part of what you're saying, like, that's where the real action is, and that's where we should put our think consideration. That, and just, just to add this, this quick point, I think that focus, right, being able to focus on the individual, is what sways policy. They point at certain cases and point at, oh, this person did this. Okay, so we need to change the whole policy. And I think that is where it's not at the other end. I think it's at that end. Right, right. So I think there are a couple, there are a couple ways to think about this. So one is that we have different systems that deal with different sets of problems, right? So on the one hand, the trial level is supposed to be organized in a way to have a set of procedures to make sure that some of the unfortunate things that happened to Warren McCleskey don't happen. And, and in this situation, they did. But, you know, the whole idea of the trial court system is to protect individuals at that level. And then the appellate system is supposed to look at these kind of broader constitutional questions about whether or not the process involved adheres to the broader federal constitutional norms that we have. And so <clears throat> the way our system is set up, we're supposed to have kind of multiple systems and that are supposed to protect the individual defendant at different levels. But there are another way, there's another way to think about that, and I think this is what uh, Rasan drew at earlier, which is this idea that, you know, what troubles me the most about this entire conversation about the criminal justice system is the profound disregard for human life that many people have in terms of prosecutor, judge, judges, jurors. They see the kind of criminal justice system as this kind of uh, factory that is, where there's inputs and there's outputs, and their job is simply to apply the law to a set of facts without taking into consideration 
that people's lives are in our hands, right? And so, and that becomes even more complicated when we're talking about the issues of race. So when we have, for example, black jurors and other minority jurors category excluded from the decision-making process, and the people who are making those, those decisions, their life experiences are so detached from the very people who they're, who, whose lives are in their hands, that creates this space and opportunity for, for racism to, to kind of shape their, their decision-making. And when you look at the role of prosecutors and judges, and how their disregards allows that to go forward. You know, part of what the Balda study is doing and part of what Warren McCleskey is doing is that they're saying, look, your disregard is fundamentally based upon this assumption that your system is fair and equitable. And even though you may have disregard for my life, in order for you to continue to do the work that you do, you have to continue to believe in this system. I'm presenting you evidence that's going to fundamentally lead you to question whether or not this system is fair. And that that means that the question about whether or not someone like Warren McCleskey should live or die, that question comes down to um, uh, having, in this case, the Supreme Court look at the ball of the study on the one hand look, and look at the results and somehow be able to cognitively square that with the outcome of Warren, uh, that, that Warren McCleskey should be executed. And part of what this case is doing is that it's no longer making a legal argument, it's making a moral argument, saying that is this, not only is it legally in line with the Equal Protection Clause, but how can you morally participate in a system that creates such profound, disproportionate results for people of color in light of the other, in light of the broader moral and legal commitment to equal protection? And so they're forcing that moral conversation to the forefront. And, and that, I think, is an important move by the court and something that Brennan picks up on in his dissent and unfortunately the rest of the court, in a sense, disregards. So this is all a way of saying that in order for this inequitable system to go forward, you know, people have to be able to kind of look themselves in the mirror. You know, Warren McCleskey and the Balda said they're, they're trying to change the reflection that people see by using statistical evidence. And unfortunately, it didn't work in this case. But it is, I think, an important process to get the court to always be reminded that the objective neutral system that they participate in and that they believe in is fundamentally inequitable and force them to at least face th th that reality. Sagi makes a million valid points, but I think Sha only makes one. The one point Shah brings up is that we have to have respect that somebody was murdered. Somebody was unfairly murdered. But I think that when we get... But not just that, we also, this man is professing he didn't do it. He's professing that he didn't shoot him. And so he, he's, he's, he's had left culpability than, than the death penalty. That's his argument. He still was involved with a robbery. But I want to talk about, like, if we don't straighten out our justice system, if we focused on, even though the victim deserves the utmost respect and they deserve justice, but the, the focus of justice is to stop things like this from happening. And if we focus only on revenge, we create a system of inequality. We keep perpetuating these systems of inequality, these systems of revenge, that's it's gonna keep on happening. But it's not just, but it's justice for when these things do happen, because it's also saying that things, these things are gonna happen. Then, there's no, then nobody trusts the system, then we operate outside the system, we don't feel like Americans. We don't want to stand up when they when somebody singing the national anthem. We ca carry guns. We operate by our own G codes, and we have these civil wars going on. But I'm tired of that argument, though, bro. Like, you, our argument has to be much more rational. It has to be much more sound if people are gonna listen to us. Yeah, they just killing us, bro. But we have to give them something to listen to. Okay, let, let's let's take this back to 30 years ago. Let's go back to 30 years ago, Asagi. Let's say that the 5-4 ruling had gone the other way. Let's say they affirmed the Baldus study. Let's say they said there is a problem with systemic racism. Let's say it wasn't Scalia on the court, that it was 
someone who was going to find, who had that moral clarity, that moral obligation and saw that obligation, what would have happened? Mm. That's a fascinating question. Um, it's hard to say because there are a lot of different dynamics to what could have happened, right? Um, but I feel confident saying at the very least, it would have been a, a moment of widespread conversation across the country about what type of discrimination is supposed to be addressed by the Equal Protection Clause, right? It would have been a moment and opportunity to think about um, whether the type of structural discrimination that was highlighted by the Balda study, is this the type of, of, of discrimination that we, should, that we should try to root out in other areas of everyday life, as I mentioned before, in housing, in education, et cetera, et cetera, um, to make sure that folks have an opportunity for equitable outcomes, right? So you can imagine this, this, uh, a 5-4 decision in McCleskey's favor could have very well been like a, 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 um, a full employment measure for sociologists, right? But then every sociologist like, like David Baldus would have been out <laughs> measuring inequalities in all types of areas of social life and saying that these type of inequalities are a function of state procedures or state practices that violate the Equal Protection Clause. And that may have very well been litigated up to the, up to the Supreme Court in a similar fashion as McCleskey. So it's hard to say what would have happened, but I think at the very least it would have been an important conversation to have. And it's precisely the type of conversation we need to have now. And I think it would also, the, so you have um, uh, Eliezer search, search, searches and seizures that are basically held up under this rule of, where you can't prove that individually it happened, right? So you have the precedent to like not have that, which takes us a very many steps back from like the, the, the police state that we live in when you're talking about uh, urban communities. Uh, you have this, this, this very inaccurate definition of, of, of racism in the American mind of it's like some, 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 some mean white dude that, like, you know, that hates this black guy across the street when racism needs no driver. It's like a bus that's driving itself, right? So you would have that understanding in the public conversation uh, and we would be better able to address issues of race because we'd all be on the same page. Right now, we're not all on the same page because you have people who live within that system and all their life they know it's true, and you have people who live outside of it, who live in a system that for all their life the system has protected and supported them. And when they hear, like Rasan say what he says, and like you said, like, yeah, I know it's true, but no one's going to listen to that. They're not going to listen to it because they live outside of our definition of racism, which is a thing that, hey, man, this thing is happening. It's automatic. But what, what do we do for the people who are actually convicted, who are guilty, and for the people that died, though? What do we do for that? Um, I, I think right, we're already doing something with that. People are in prison. More people are in prison today than ever. They're doing more time than they've ever done Ever mm -hmm. so to speak as if like people are just getting away with murder. That's crazy. Like, but no, it people, sounds locking, like we are locking motherfuckers like, up on a mass scale. It sounds like with it sounds like, bro. It sounds like if we did change this ruling, right? You know what I mean? You taking everybody off though. It's it's people are gonna be getting. This off. ruling wasn't about his incarceration. It was about putting him to death. That's all this was about putting him to death. It wasn't about whether or not he's going to be in prison, whether or not he's going to pay for his crimes. It's about whether or not you are going to murder a man. I get that. So, 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 so for me, right? So, so let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and so start it's talking the death about, penalty well, what then? about but the wait, crime? Wait, 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 wait. So we're challenging the death penalty then? Yes. Yes. Period. The, Im the imposition. The imposition How, of the death penalty. How, who, who is Do we need the merits of death. this case to do that, though? 
Well, this case that was the, the reason, case that was available. I right. mean, it's not like <laughs> no, but this 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 Baldus study cost a quarter of a million dollars. Uh -huh. It it is not an inexpensive process to get a, this kind of data. Uh -huh. But when they got the data and they saw that there was an unequal review of who should go to the death penalty and who should not, that's when they saw that there was a racial bias in who was being given the death penalty and who was not being given no, the death and penalty. No, and I get that, but I so, just feel like in this case, though, right, I, I, I keep feeling like that, though. I mean, it's, it's just like, okay, we sacrificed him to make this argument. But actually, after he was before the Supreme Court, he went back to the lower court and tried to argue that his conviction, his guilty conviction, that he was innocent. And he was unsuccessful. Yeah, and, and I get it. But it's just like, why aren't we spending more resources? Why aren't we spending $250,000 on that then, as opposed to this study? I think, I uh, guess to answer your question, like, why are we spending these resources in this way? And I think the history of civil rights legislation has been filled with questions like that. So people question the wisdom of spending all this money to make sure that in the 1950s that black kids can go to school with white kids. Why don't we invest that money to make sure that black schools are the best they can be, right? So, so these type of arguments about how we should spend our money have been, I think, pervasive in, as part of the broader conversation of racial justice. And I think this, there's a similar answer to your question about using the money this way in McCleskey as to this, the question of whether or not we, they should use the money they did in Brown v. Board of Education with regards to school integration. And that is that these were kind of big types of impact uh, litigation that had to the potential to fundamentally transform society, right? So in Brown, the idea of racial integration of, of primary and secondary schools had a had the there was a chance to fundamentally change the way that people lived their lives on the ground. And similarly with McCleskey, you know, as, as Nancy talked about earlier in terms of had the five four decision gone in another direction, you know, you can you could see a potential outcome where had that occurred it would have been transformative for how we think about a death penalty, how we think about incarceration, how we think about criminal justice, and for also additional matters that we talked about outside the criminal justice system. So it, it could have just changed the way that the court thinks about its responsibility to facilitating an equitable society by using the 14th Amendment. Now, it didn't, or it didn't work out. don't know how powerful it could have made victims' rights groups as it, it could have made them exponentially more powerful than the new legislation that could have came in. No one really knows. No us. one knows what direction would have gone in, but at least that conversation would have been incredibly valuable, right? And and I think that was the hope and, and the intent of the ball of the study. That is to kind of show that the, this is a systemic problem as opposed to an individual question about whether or not there was a, a bad individual in the, in the McCleskey trial. But you know, you, you can see the vision that they were shooting for, and quite frankly, the evidence they provided was pretty persuasive, right? And it just didn't necessarily persuade the court. But, you know, that's the nature of this type of litigation. You know, you make chances. And I think part of what Nancy was saying that, you know, McCleskey had a suite of arguments at that at that federal appellate, appellate level, and he wasn't hanging everything on this one argument on equal protection, right? Um, and so I think his, his lawyers were trying to put a series of arguments before the court and hoping that one of them would be successful. Okay, I'm with that. But this is what I'm saying. Did that, are they saying, can he point to things that say that happened in this case? Yes. He did? Wait, he wait, 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 wait. There were some racist girls in this case? Just, the victim was white. Just for clarity, no, right? He, 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 couldn't, he couldn't prove an individual had animus against me, and they made a decision uh, that was based on racism. But then the next question is, how is that ever provable? We don't live in a society, right, pre-Trump, where it was acceptable to say, 
I'm I, a racist. I disagree. That was the birth of dog what? whistle politics. No, 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 no. That's, I, what, I, that's I dis- what dog whistle politics. I understand you disagree, but I'm just saying facts on the ground. Circumstantial evidence. Facts on the ground. Circumstantial evidence is enough to people, give people life sentences. It's not enough so to overturn a court and a, a case up. in the Supreme Court. But look, it's, though, not, right? it's not they there. They decided it wasn't enough. The Supreme Court looked at this. They looked at it. Like, bro, like they put it under a magnifying glass, though, right? If this is what you're arguing, they saying, man, true, show in your specific case that there were some racist jurors. The Supreme Court created that standard in the decision. In the decision. They created right. a standard that, hey, look, this is the way we're going to measure racism. You must find a person who did a thing which you can prove was motivated by their racial attitude towards you. Let me, that let me was read sta- something. Hold that up, was bro. Hold just up, the up, standard. This was hell, right? Uh-huh. The Boulder study, it said, one, to prevail under the clause, petitioner must prove that the decision makers in his case acted with discriminatory purpose. Petitioner offered no evidence specific to this. Right. That's the finding. That's the point. That is the... He couldn't show it. Wait, wait. The finding couldn't show it. Standard didn't exist before the case existed. Like, he said, hey, look, I'm showing you that this system is racist. That standard existed because of the case. The judge heard the evidence and said... I hear your evidence, but it doesn't prove your case. Bro. This is why. And then they created Bro. that standard. It says also, 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 am, am, am I right to say that some of the judges disagreed? They felt that that statistical evidence was enough to prove it? Yeah, four. absolutely. Four. All right, yeah. so it's four or five. So it's just what? a matter of opinion that's whether what? there's evidence or not. That's what it's a matter of opinion. He literally, literally got murdered on a matter of opinion. Was that the evidence is literally what case Straight law up. and precedent is. The precedent doesn't exist before the case comes mm-hmm. before the court. And this is a key point. The point you're making that look, yeah. the, the, what you just read, like that standard was articulated at that moment, applied to Ms. Klesky, and has applied for the 30 year sentence. And, and so that very standard is what's precluding any other type of radical transformation of the critical justice system be, or the criminal justice system, precisely because if you don't meet that standard of being able to identify that biased person in your trial, then the equal protection clause doesn't exist or d- doesn't apply. And so, part, and so. And again, if we take our minds back to 1987, you know, th- there was a, this was a moment in time where McCluskey's lawyers felt that there's still a window to make uh, structural discrimination, systemic racism, uh, something that is cognizable by the Equal Protection Clause. We're going to use this moment, bolster it with this statistical evidence showing that folk, black folks in Georgia get a raw deal with regards to how they are prosecuted. We're going to bring it to the court, and if things fall our way, we can change how things move forward. And it gets went a different direction. So that's why this case is so important, because again, at that moment, things could have gone either way. There was an opportunity there to kind of rethink everything. And you know, some people at that moment also thought this was an opportunity to shut down, shut down the death penalty in the United States as well, right? So all these things were, all these aspirations were up in the air. And you know, this new guy comes onto the court three weeks in, he makes this decision. He sides with the other four people, and here we are. And so, this all speaks to again, as you, as you were pointing out, you know, the, the you know we think of law as being this concrete, objective stuff that's written in stone, right? But in reality, you know, politics plays a huge part of it, and in particular when we're talking about uh, minority groups that are disadvantaged across the board. So this is a very spirited discussion, and I appreciate it. And I would like to thank first and foremost Professor Osagi Obasigi for coming and lending his expertise. I would like to thank Emil D. Weaver. I would like to thank Nancy Mullane, and I would like to thank Rasan Thomas. And I would also like to thank Tony Gannon for being our impromptu engineer. And for being willing to listen to all shots jibber-jabber.
in studio San Quentin State Prison was produced by Shadid Wallace-Stepter and Tony Gannon. We want to thank Shadid, Rasan Thomas, and Emil DeWeaver of the Society of Professional Journalists San Quentin for making this in-studio possible. Thanks also to Asagi Obasaki, Life of the Law's Advisory Board member and professor at UC Berkeley School of Public Health, and to Lieutenant Sam Robinson, San Quentin Public Information Officer, for making this episode possible. Our post-production editors are Kirsten Jesuits-Heidel and Rachel Kane. Our music was composed by Ian Koss. Howard Gelman of KQED Radio in San Francisco was our engineer. Next on Life of the Law, The Warriors, a co-production with the Kitchen Sisters. I barely know anybody that's been to jail for two days. One day. I'm lucky. A lot of these guys grew up in the wrong place, make the wrong decision. I think when we come in, brightens it up a little bit, you know, but we get to leave. That's next on Life of the Law. If you're curious about the law and like binge listening, tune into Life of the Law on iTunes. There are 110 amazing episodes about people and the law. Take a few minutes to post your review, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Each time we publish a new episode, we send people who have subscribed to our newsletter a behind-the-scenes look at Life of the Law that includes notes from our reporters and our listeners. We're a nonprofit project of the Tide Center, and we're part of the Panoply Network of Podcasts. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange. We're funded by the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the National Science Foundation, and by you. Visit our website, lifeofthelaw.org, and make a very much appreciated donation to help pay for the direct costs of producing our episodes. I'm Nancy Mullane. Thanks for listening.